0: Guys, before we get started with the show, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, which is VeloFix. That's right. VeloFix is a full-service mobile bike shop. It's a bike shop in a van that offers convenient premium service to cyclists at their homes or office. The goal is to give cyclists more time to do what they love, which, of course, is ride our bikes. No more hassle of lugging your bike to the local bike shop and waiting days to get it back. VeloFix provides service for all types of bikes. Road bikes, mountain bikes, triathlon, e bikes, even commuter bikes, simply book online, schedule your appointment, and VeloFix will show up to your front door or office, fix your bike, and get you back out riding. Each VeloFix mobile bike shop is fully equipped with all the parts and accessories needed to get the job done right then and there. Again, VeloFix, thanks for the sponsorship this week. On with the show. At uh, the Velo <laughs> News Podcast, I am Fred Dreyer, Editor-in-Chief of VeloNews. You know, I just, I don't know if uh, Kaylee Fretz was the strongest podcaster in the room. Actually, I think Kaylee Fretz was the strongest podcaster in the room, even though Spencer Paulison won this week. Uh, that is my recreation <laughs> of the quotes that we had out of the Dauphiné, the Criterium de Dauphiné, which we had wrap up this past weekend in France. It's, it's too bad that some podcasters chose to... Do a negative podcast? Did they have negative podcasting tactics? Mm. Ooh, it's too my bad. Gosh, really, really a shame, guys. We were gifted a great couple days of racing at the end of the Delphine, and we need to get on it. Say. Three days, yeah. We have lots of takes. We have analysis. We have storylines. We have all things Delphine to get to. So, guys, let's get to it. Uh, well, actually, and then the second part of the show, we are going to talk with Kaylee and myself about. Um, some of the feature stories that we had go into the most recent issue. That is the June 2017 issue of Velo News print magazine. Tom Bonin, Tom Bonin. Kaylee
1: followed Tom Bonin around for his final week of racing. Yep. I mean, followed, yeah, basically. You tried him. I, I, tried. I stayed as close as I could. You know, sometimes with binoculars. He dropped you on the cobbles. He definitely dropped me on the cobbles.
0: Well, I think it was
1: tough to decide which was the correct Tombuna to follow because of all the people wearing those goofy Tombuna masks. You know what I'm really sad about is I forgot to bring one home. I, I really wanted to keep a tombonin' mask for Missed every. opportunity. I know. I like them, but they're kind of creepy because they have the Super eyes creepy. missing. Yeah, <laughs> creepy tombonin' mask. And
0: I wrote the a story. Silence of the lambs type situation. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Ooh,
1: ooh, yeah. ooh. Uh,
0: I was over there as well. Uh, we were both over in Belgium back in uh, April, and I wrote about the Flemish way of identifying young cyclists and developing them. Basically, how are they trying to find the next tombonin'? And so, yeah, we'll have some fun little discussions around those two stories but guys let's get into it we had the Dauphiné wrap up on Sunday um, it was it was a great race kind of an annoyance for American cycling fans because each stage like would wrap up at like 6 a.m Colorado time and yeah did not anybody so good for us. yeah did anybody watch any of them live uh nope I know <laughs> I binged I had to like yeah. I went and replayed stayed the last three stages last night just binge mode. Yep. Yeah. Not a bad way to do it. Probably you really get some continuity. That's I mean, true. Got me. Got me really fired
1: up. They were. They, the stages were ending at like two o'clock in the afternoon local time uh-huh. in France, which is basically when the Vuelta starts. Uh-huh. But I didn't really like it very much. Uh-huh. No. They should start. They should finish more like five or six. Why did we they, get more? Is television? that like for
2: weather? Were they just worried about the weather getting bad on some of those mountains? Or? Uh,
1: no, I think they're just being French. Are <sighs>
0: they just trying <sighs> to suppress yeah, like, our takes? French? Were <laughs> they like? French? <laughs> Fred, Spencer, and Kaylee need to formulate some, like, and <laughs> takes on this year's race, and we're going to make it as hard as possible. <laughs> yep. Uh, but we caught the replays. I, I got to say, beautiful pictures on the replays. Like, France just looks stunning right now. It's so green. It's a good time of the year. The Alpine today. region. They lucked just, out with the yeah, weather. They really out with had the weather. great weather. <laughs> they, luck- they really lucked out. Colors were really popping uh, you know what else was really popping it was Fabi Aru's like suffer face, mm. which is back in our lives.
1: Like yeah, a, three bad, like
2: three months away. Oh, I know. we've been
1: really you it's know bad in withdrawal. It's a really it's a, just a bad verb to use, Fred. What's that popping suffer <laughs> just, face? Just pop. Yeah, just the pop, <laughs> pop, Aru. It's problematic, uh, very problematic. It was really
0: jumping off of my computer screen and into my eyes. Just, I, you know, I love seeing the like the frowns and the smiles and just him contorting so his face like a muppet. Yeah, and <laughs> I mean, and and with good reason because he was crushing it there on a couple stages. What would his
1: muppet name be? Oh man, I don't know. papalopoulos papalopoulos Fabulous, Fabulopolis, <laughs> Fabulopolis. I like that. Um,
0: Are Muppets Greek? I don't. I, I would assume so. Okay, it could be. So this morning we have a couple storylines to chew through because there were a lot of different storylines to come out of this race, and namely, Richie Port probably the strongest guy in the race, uh, did not win. He lost on the final stage. And now we have to ask the question about why. Uh, Another storyline we can talk about is what does this mean for Astana, with Jakob Fuglsang, the overall winner, and Fabio Aru having shaken, baked their way to an overall victory. What does this mean for the Tour de France? And uh, finally, what does this mean for Chris Froome? I mean, he um, he was the two-time defending champion heading into this year. I think a lot of us picked him to win. And he seemed... Fair. I mean, he gave it his best, but he seemed a little bit off pace. Mm. But I don't know about you guys. I am not worried at all
1: no. about Chris Froome. I think he's. I, I think
0: he's.
2: The panic button is still like locked away in a drawer. Yeah. <laughs> the panic button's like with the Christmas decorations for him.
1: Yeah. I think he's. Yeah. Pl- you know, playing dead a little bit. I think he was uh, crying wolf. I think he's. You know, all those various analogies. I think Head Games. We have to get into some Head Games, head games. at a certain point, because I think Chris Froome might be playing some Head I think Games. he's playing serious
2: Head Isn't Games. Isn't there like a sweet 80s song? Head, head Games! Head. Yeah. Put, yeah. That, put that in the track when you edit this, Ready?
1: Kayleigh. Right here. Head
0: Games! It's you and me, baby! Head Games! And I can't take it anymore!
1: Head Games. Oh, man. So good. Solid. Uh, Let's get to
0: it, guys. Let's talk about Port versus Froome first, because I think we have a budding rivalry going on. Um, This race, in my mind, the the most memorable moment of this year's race uh, came down to the final stage when the Peloton was climbing up the Col de Colombier, the penultimate climb. And it was just so evident that Richie Port, who had no teammates with him, was marking Chris Froome. And in marking Cruz Froome, he allowed everyone else to go up the road. I think we even saw a few hand gestures between the two of them right there was a little bit of a
2: yeah it was <laughs> I think he was <laughs> kind of, of a like staring contest a little
0: bit of a staring contest and then what happened was Froom attacked over the top of the climb, joined up with the front group, buried his teammate in that group and then himself, which gave the group a huge advantage on Port, who was chasing behind. And that allowed Jakob Fugelzang to attack with Dan Martin to score the overall win. Um, Afterwards, we were greeted to some comments on both sides of the Port-Froom budding rivalry, uh, at which Port, I believe, said that other teams were racing negatively. I
1: don't know. There was a little bit of poopy pants going on. Yep. He says, I think I can take some positives out of the negative style of racing Mm -hmm. I think you've got to take some positives out of the negative style of racing and I would say that it was actually not negative racing I think maybe Froome was racing a little bit negatively in terms of you know no, because Froome attacked him. Yeah. <laughs> what, what the hell? Yeah. No, he Attacking doesn't count as it. Because I'm surprised he didn't, couldn't follow also over the Columbia sidebar. I, I, yeah, I mean... I was a little surprised. Port had nobody to blame but himself for losing the Dauphine. If he had followed Froome over the top of the Columbia... Or then, if he had closed that gap to the Fulsang group earlier yeah. on the Columbia, which it seemed like they just kind of sat up for a moment and let the gap go. Yeah, I, I... I, I it's tough to save just watching on television. I think that that, that not following Froom. He was following Froom all damn day. Yeah, Froom exactly. was following him all damn day. And then the one moment when he really should have been following Froom, he didn't, and he let that gap open up. And then he had to do a twenty five kilometer solo time trial, right? Which was impressive, by the way. It was he was clearly the strongest guy. Yeah, he in that very I mean, the yeah. fact that he caught Froom again, going up the final climb, passed him. You know, he was definitely the strongest rider. Uh, but he really has nobody to blame but himself for losing that bike race.
0: Well, so the way I read it was that, you know, he was isolated and he's the one chasing down Valverde and Aru, who are off the front. And you could tell he's getting a little frustrated because he's having to burn all these matches with the guys sitting behind him. And so at a certain point, he just doesn't want to do the chasing anymore. I believe that's when Tony Galapan went up the road, and then who was quickly thereafter joined by Fuglsang and um, Dan Martin. And then... I think he wanted Froome to do some work. Oh, he certainly did. I think yeah. he was like, okay, Froome, you're in second place. You're going to lose second place if these guys keep going. And Froome was Froome's like, do you, happy to lose second place.
1: Yeah, do you have any idea how little I care about second place <laughs> with Criteriter <laughs> Dauphiné? Right, and, yeah,
0: right.
2: and that's not how it works if you're leading a grand tour. Yep. like You're wearing the yellow jersey. You, you take the initiative usually. And
0: so here's the, another port quote that came out of it. That's their strategy. I can't say that they were trying to win the race, but trying to make me lose the race, perhaps. Say lovey. More poopy pants. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this pens a new interesting chapter into the relationship between these two guys, because up to this point, like, Froome and Port have been very public buddies. I mean, obviously, they were teammates on Sky for a number of years. But even last year, um, they would always have very magnanimous things to say about each other. They would have... Hugs and verbal hugs after each stage of the tour. There was even like some speculation that Port was helping
2: Froome in the tour or in other races and and pulling more than he really needed to. Right.
1: No more hugs.
0: Is the bromance over, guys? it might be. Bromance might be over. the Froome-Port bromance officially dead?
1: Hmm. I hope so, because this is going to make for an exciting tour. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I really would prefer a lack of bromance from two opposing teammates who might also be the top two rivals for the Tour of France. <laughs> so the other wrinkle here is that if you look at this, like I did from Froome's perspective, so
0: Froome doesn't want to pull, makes do Port do the pulling, then he springs away from Port over the top of the Colombier, um, catches the front group, and immediately has Kuyakowski pull that group, and then he pulls that group until he explodes to to gap to further gap port who's chasing um and then you know we saw fugazong and martin attack for the win um those were his two bullets and so the bullets he chose to play added aided the guys who eventually won and like definitely hurt port and then after the race the quote that he gives about port i'd still say richie was far and above the strongest man in the race He did get caught out tactically. His team did get caught out tactically today. But I still have to say that he's the favorite for July and the strongest rider in the Peloton right now. So Froome uses his two bullets to shoot Richie Port and destroy his race and then tells reporters afterwards that he's the strongest guy and the favorite for the Tour de France. I don't know about you guys, but again, we need the Head Games song right now. Head Games! This to me is like... A-plus gold standard Olympic medal head games going on right <laughs> now. Yeah,
2: there. I, I definitely agree with the, the head games in terms of the post-race comments, but I think I'd add that, to be fair, having Foolsang in that final selection, I doubt Froome was, like, really super worried about Foolsang. I mean, he knows he's good. Is it, like, the sort of thing where... you know, I think it's just a smart thing to do is to race as hard as you can into that final climb because conceivably Froome could have won the overall right then and there if Will Sang had popped or if, you know, it had played out a little different. It seemed like he knew he wasn't quite on form, but, uh, you know, I think at that point of the race... Just very, it, it could have gone either way, really, just it's, depending on how people
0: felt on the final true, climb. But look, Froome is a guy who knows his physical capabilities better than anyone. So if he's in that front group with a bunch of rivals who all want to win, and he can feel the tank getting a little bit lower, why go on the front and bury yourself to the point where you're not going to be able to like sustain that effort for the full climb? I just don't know. I it's just, a training day. I just feel like he yeah. knows himself well mm-hmm. enough, and if he's really wanting to win, maybe at a certain point he
1: says, okay, what do you other guys take? Hey, He's just, you know, he's just getting some intervals in. Yeah, it's yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> just get the race tempo back. Got to get the race tempo back. No, I, I think that it's always impressive when you manage to win the head games war oh, yeah. when you lose the race. Yeah, that's 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 something else. You know, like, like Port was yeah. Port should have won the head games war at the Dauphiné. If you're the strongest rider, you should be able to mess with everybody else. You should. Be, I mean, Froome should be terrified right now. Right. Instead, that was Froome saying, "Hey Richie, remember." Just remember this in a couple of weeks when you're isolated again, when your team is once again not around you. This is exactly how it's gonna go down in a couple of weeks. It doesn't matter if you're stronger than me, I'm gonna win the tour anyway.
0: Or I take it as like, hey Richie, you came into this race flying, you're the strongest guy in the race and you know what, you still didn't win. Um, you know. Uh, uh, good luck over these next three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Oof, brutal. Yeah, I see It's it going to be a long June. <laughs> it is, but I don't know about you guys. I am very excited for July 9 because I think we have a bona fide rivalry here. You know, we talked about this in, in the office before this, but, you know, the rivalries that Chris Froome has had before this have been so lukewarm. It was like, Chris Froome versus over-the-hill Alberto Contador. Chris Froome versus Naira Quintana, who, you know, we love Quintana, but he's a bit of a black box. He's not an English speaker. We don't get a whole lot of great comments out of him. Last case of emotion. Right. And now we have... Two emotive English speakers, former teammates. Throwing, can
2: get fiery, too.
0: Yeah. You've seen both of them get fiery. Throwing barbs at each other. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm psyched. I I'm, do I'm like Yeah, that. we're going to get some great quotes. Good potential.
1: I'm looking forward to great finish line quotes throughout the Tour de France. Maybe some storming on other people's buses. Ooh. Oh. Yeah.
0: See, I'm looking for just, like, the most, like, thanks but no thanks, sorry, not sorry, dripping with <laughs> subtext <laughs> quotes that we're going to co- have, where it's just, like, well, yeah, Chris is a real professional, and, you know, that's one way to race, I guess. To pass the aggressive off? Yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Just, like, the read-between-the-lines yeah. um, Kremlinology that we're going to be going through over the next few weeks. So, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. Um, what, um, you know, another storyline I feel like to come out of this the value of these short stages. Kaylee, you wrote about this for VeloNews.com today. I did. Um, we have had this conversation many times, which is we love these short stages and their ability to throw chaos into a race. And the Dauphiné, it really seems like they succeeded.
1: Yep. Yeah, so I went back and did some deep, deep statistical analysis uh, <laughs> on these short stages. They haven't always worked, actually. Like There was there was a, sh- a relatively short stage at the Giro that was not as exciting as we were all hoping for. Mm-hmm. There are a couple things that these short stages need. The first and foremost is the day before has to be epic. Mm. Because the important thing about these short stages is the GC leader's team has to be tired. Not the GC leader, but the GC leader's team has to be tired. This is this is true at Formigal, at the Vuelta when Froome lost the Vuelta. Uh, it was true on Sunday at the Dauphine. The day before was really hard and the GC leader's team was wasted. Uh, and so what we're hoping for is there's another one of these short stages at the Tour de France, stage 13 to Foix. Mm-hmm. It's 100 kilometers, three Cat 1 climbs. Uh, i mean, a 100K race in the middle of the Tour de France. That's 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 really, that's really a, short. It's a distance that even I could do. Yeah. I mean, they're going to do this. This is going to be like a two-hour race. In. You're going to be there, right? <laughs> Just hop in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The day before it, is a 214 kilometer slog across a whole bunch of HC climbs Duh. and Cat One climbs. Summit finish. Summit finish. Brutal race. So good. whoever's leading at that time, and I am gonna put, I'm gonna put a couple bucks on Port leading at mm. that point in time. Ooh, team is shot. gonna be team is gonna be real tired, and if there are a bunch of riders still, this is the sort of the third element that needs to that needs to be uh, in place. If there are a bunch of GC riders who are all within spitting distance, they're gonna hit. The, the leader on that first Cat 1 climb, try to isolate him, and then it's it's game over. I mean, six. then you have 65K where you're trying to hang on to, you're trying to hold the entire group together by yourself if you're the GC leader. Well, and this is really going
0: to uh, tell us about the metal and uh, talent of Team BMC, which, you know, I, I don't think that the guys at the um, Dauphiné were BMC's A team for the tour, but, you know... Some of them were. Some I of mean, them were.
1: B- Book Walter will likely be at the tour as well. Right. Uh, the, you know... The, I'm looking at the... You
2: know, right. the only thing to add about that stage 13 is it's not a summit finish. Yeah. Which is... True. You know, that, that really made however a nice stage
1: because that's where the gaps really went out. But... There it, were some decent-sized gaps at the bottom of the Columbia, though.
2: Yeah. Even but, even but, but it wouldn't have been enough for Port to have lost if
1: it had True. finished at the bottom of the Columbia. True. But, um... It, uh, so BMC has sent a bunch of their tour squad to Tour de Suisse. So that was part of Port's problem. Uh, we're likely to see guys like Rowan Dennis, uh, maybe Kung, uh, end up at... Atapuma, at at Probably a the big climbing lieutenant yeah. for BMC, I'd uh, say. Yeah, like, likely, likely to see him at... Tour de France, Mm. so I think that BMC will be quite strong at the tour. I still think Sky will be stronger, and not Sky
2: strong at all. Not Sky strong.
1: And and the thing is, if I mean these guys aren't robots, if they're super tired from the day before. The, and, and, and the rivals make it hard enough on that first climb. There's no way that any of the climbing domestiques are going to be able to hang on. So
0: You know, these short stages, they're kind of a new wrinkle for cycling. And um, the pro guys are still trying to fit, figure out how to race them, let alone us mere mortals. Yeah. I think we, meet, we might need to have uh, a Cat 3 segment about short stages. Yeah, Cat 3 races are usually short. That's true. the perfect person to ask. Perfect people to ask. All right, well, ask a Cat 3. How do you race these short Grand Tour stages?
2: Spencer? Uh well it's short so um, I'm gonna start with just like half a bottle of water okay. because Ooh, you uh, you gotta save weight and it's short so you can get through it. No worries, you won't you won't have to worry about dehydration. No food either. Definitely don't
0: bring any food. Foods that's heavy. weight. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I might, I might wear the skin suit even. Oh, I like it. Um, yeah, I think since it's a shorter stage, that means it's gonna start fast. So really, the key is your uh, trainer warm up mm, beforehand. Really intense. Yeah, yeah. So this just is the stage where like you break out the trainer, soaked in sweat and sweat by just, the start. <laughs> yeah, just just do a really hard, like Spinnerville style <laughs> <Yeah>. trainer session <laughs> before the race even starts. Like get the big headphones on, dripping sweat, and just like imagine that maniac from Spinnerville just screaming in your face.
2: <laughs>
0: Moving on. So the man who won this race, Jakob Fuglsang, is a man who has been in our lives as pro cycling fans for a number of years. This is definitely his biggest victory. Um, you know, It was an opportunist's victory. It was a bit of a team victory because he did have Fabio Aru helping set him up throughout the week. And, you know, I guess a question off the bat is, does this now propel Jakob Fuglsang into a second or third tier Tour favorite spot heading in. I, I'm inclined to say
1: yes. He can time second trial. tier, second tier. I say second tier. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, I mean, you know, it, it is. You always have to be careful because um, the last couple of years, which has seen have seen Froome win the Dauphiné and then also win the Tour Fronts, are actually uh, that's not normal. Generally, that throughout the Dauphiné's history, the winner of the Dauphiné has more often than not not won the Tour de France.
2: Yeah, let's not forget, like Janusz Brakovic won it one year. Yeah, and
0: it's
1: the, almost like when a strong man
0: wins the Dauphiné, he's going to win the Tour de France, and when like a second tier guy or third tier guy wins the Dauphiné, it's just sort of good luck.
1: Yeah, well, and, and the, the, what you can take away is that just just because you have a good ride at the Dauphiné does not guarantee a good ride at the Tour de France. That's the important thing to remember, and so. Fuglsang, maybe he's maybe he really wanted to win the Dauphiné. Maybe he's super peaked right now. Uh, maybe he's going to sort of fall off the wagon at at you know second week of, of the Tour de France and end up half an hour behind.
2: He's you know he's not like totally an unknown quantity though for the Grand Tours. He he was he was seventh at the 2013 Tour de France, so he's he's not like totally uh, unknown. Quantity.
0: And that's the thing about Fuglsang is that over the last few years he has really played the role of Vincenzo Nibali's. Chief Lieutenant and Astana, and only in a few cases has he been given the green light to race for his own ambitions, and I think that's a real new thing this year. You know, heading into 2017, Astana, it was very public with their Grand Tour ambitions, which was Aru was to, to challenge, you know, to challenge at the Giro, and then fugozong was going to get the green light for the Tour. Which, you know, it was a real sort of new situation for him being a Grand Tour leader. Obviously, Aru got injured, couldn't do the Giro, so now he's up to bat for the Tour as well. But I don't think that's derailed Fugelzang's training for the year. No, so, it wouldn't. Know, he, yeah. He's definitely peaking for this race.
1: No, I think Fugelzang is still planning to be the leader at at the Tour, and I think that we will find out whether he actually gets to be the leader and not Aru uh, through a combination of that opening time trial. If Aru loses, you know, it's not a long TT, but Aru could still lose a bunch of time because he's a terrible time trialist. And then Planche de Belfi. Stage five. I mean that for any team that has more than one leader, that's gonna that's gonna answer all the questions that, that they need. Uh, you know, if if Aru ends up a minute ninety seconds faster than Fuglsang up Plunge de Belfi, that early in the race, that's the end of Fuglsang's run at the overall, most likely. Uh, if they come in together. Then, you know, then they continue onward as as dual captains. And in all likelihood, Fuglesang is going to time trial better at the end of the race. So yeah, if they stay close throughout the entire Tour de France, then Fuglesang probably ends up finishing higher than Aru. I think it all comes down to plunge to fee whether Fuglesang will actually be GC leader at Astana. A
2: lot of it's luck. A lot yeah. of it's going to be luck, too. I, I feel like any number of these second-tier GC favorites They seem more susceptible to just weird things happening, getting caught in a crash and a hectic early, early sprint, sprint stage in the first week, perhaps things like that. I just don't I don't feel like you can count on them like you can count on Chris Froome to to get through those those first week
0: or week and a half of the tour. So way back in the day, I used to cover Jakob Fuglsang on the mountain bike circuit when I was a uh, Valenius mountain bike guy. We're going like back like ten years. You guys want to hear some Jakob Fuglsang stories? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, okay. So one year I was at the Cape Epic and uh, Fuglsang was there. He was teammates with Rule Paulison Or uh, yeah, with Rule Paulison. No relation. I know. And um, <laughs> they were leading the race, and it was the final day, and they had a small, tenuous gap on the Bulls squad, and they and they were like winning the stage too. When all of a sudden. Uh, Jakob was on flat tire which then the the tire got shredded and it was like 6k to the finish line of uh, pavement and so he rode his Crossmax wheel just rim on pavement for those 6k and um they took video of it. I remember oh. seeing like early grainy, sort of like smartphone video of him like zigzagging around on the road, going fast, like <laughs> really fast, like oh my god! And it was um, the the wheel was worn down, so the walls of the uh, rim were totally like. <laughs> Worn down. Looks like someone had taken a belt sander to it. Jeez. <laughs> and he finished. Like, they barely held off the bulls to it. And they won. They won,
2: yeah. That's, that's some determination. That is determination.
0: Uh, later on that year, he raced the U23 uh, World Championships, came in as the heavy underdog against Nino Schurter, who was just lighting everybody up. And this is at Fort William. And Nino did what Nino always does, which was, like, sprint off the line, get a huge gap. And Fugelzang doggedly chased him down and passed him on the final lap to win and he won the you know that was like his last mountain bike uh, race before going to the road and nino scherter was so pissed off (laughs) he was despondent he was just the angriest i've ever seen a young mountain biker at the time because fuckelzang had like you know rode a more steady race and chased him down um, good racer, you know, he's been doing it, doing it for a long time. He was yeah, part he's 32. So he's 32 definitely at the peak
2: really in terms of just his physical
1: potential. Yeah. He'll be able to keep up with Froome when Froome does his crazy downhill attacks. Yeah. That was the true. other thing I took out of the Dauphin actually is that Froome like he's a legit madman. Oh yeah. On the descents. We saw it a bit at the Tour de France last year. I wasn't sure if it was just like crazy Tour de France Froome. No. Froom's just crazy. I, he, I mean, he was like dive bombing port and he's, corners. He's and good now. He's, he's so really, good on the descents. Really, uh, we you know I think we can start putting him up on that on that. He's like you know, Nibbly that, level. Yeah, that's. What I, yeah. I think he's up with Nibbly. He's up with Sanchez. He's up with. He's a really really good descender, and his rivals are going to have to keep an eye on him because there are a bunch of there are a bunch of stages that finish at the bottom of descents, including that hundred k to foie. I would not be surprised in the slightest. Again, my prediction is that Port has yellow at that point. I think Froom has yellow after that stage.
2: Shambray stage
0: also
1: stage yep. 9.
2: That that's yeah, that's a nasty stage. That's that's going to be a tough one. He's okay, crazy here, man.
0: Here's my last song anecdote. So, it was the Hooflies World Cup and I'm walking around the finish line, full of people, and um, I I feel this like tap on my back, and I turn around, and it's Jakob Fuglsang and Andy Schleck, and they're just like hanging out at the race. And Fuglsang had recognized me because we like hung out a couple times at the Cape Epic, and he's like, "Hey man, what's up? What's up?" And they wanted me to see if I could call over the Canadian mountain biker Emily Batty for an interview because <laughs> they thought she was really cute, and they wanted oh, to like like, meet her or whatever. And so I called over Emily Batty. because And the, and Andy Schleich was like, oh, let's pretend I'm a journalist. And, like, <laughs> oh I can interview him. God. Like, all right, let's call over Emily Batty and ask her about her race. And then, like, oh, this is um, Andy. He's from the Luxembourg Mountain Bike Network, and he wants to ask you some questions. And, like, he starts asking her questions about her race, and she had no idea who he was. <laughs> and, like, I think he had won Liege Best on Age that year and <laughs> was, like, was, like, second at the Giro or something. And they, and they asked her a bunch of questions. And I was like, hey, Emily, that's... And he's like, he might win the door one day. And she's like, <laughs> okay, <"Yeah."> whatever. <laughs> I have a boyfriend. Beat it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, Emily. Sorry. <laughs> um, okay. So do we have, what are some other quick reaction takes we can take away from this Dauphiné? Um, what do we think about Contador?
1: Mm, uh, eh, playing possum a little bit. think so? Um well, I don't know if it's plain possum or he's just—he's just really his form is still on the up and up. He had—he had, had some quotes this week about basically to that effect, saying that you know I like to come into the Dauphiné a little bit sort of slow, a little bit soft, uh, and then and then really peak for the Tour. I mean, the thing to keep in mind here is that Sunday, this stage that sort of blew up the Dauphiné is a month away from the similar stage at the Tour de France. Right. I mm-hmm. mean, we, we are a long way away from the stages that really matter at the Tour. That's true. It's it there is plenty of time to, to sharpen the sword, so to speak. And I think that the guys who are already super sharp should be a little bit worried. That that's why I worry about like Fugel saying. Mm-hmm. The, the, only,
2: the only danger in the tour route is that stage five fee, that's a pretty early it's challenge. It's
1: really early and it's really hard, but you know, even if you're not totally there you're probably only going to lose 60 to 90 seconds which i think you can get back later on things like the eastward and 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 some of the other hard stages
2: Contador really showed up for the time trial too i did i think that that's a bellwether to see him ride pretty much on par with froome in that time trial yep and uh we we were looking at the distances earlier and it's pretty much the same distance as the tours
0: stage 20 time trial so well, that was kind of his approach last year. Although, you know, he won that uphill time trial at the Dauphiné last year yeah. and then just got punched mm-hmm. in the face. Good for him on a couple of the stages. I thought he looked stronger last year than he did this year. Uh, yeah, I agree there. I th- so maybe he is going with a little undercook it coming in. But, oh, man, he looked look like he was suffering on some of the stages. He does. Didn't look, at,
2: didn't look as lively
0: as no. usual. A little, little bit heavy in the legs. And he does that thing now. Like, he kind of lists to the left. He's like out of the saddle. And he's kind of leaning, creaking over to the left. It's getting old, That's man. Counterweight the drivetrain. Yeah. The drivetrain's on the know. right, I, so it counterweight. It reminds me of the, um, man, it was like Mansebo, oh, yeah. 2005 Francisco tour. Francisco Mansebo with the head tilt. When thing. he would tilt over to one side. Yeah. I mean, not to compare. Uh, okay, <laughs> uh, some on. other quick takes. Um, Dan Martin, Roman Bardet, what do we have to say about them? Dan Martin looked very aggressive. Denmark always, he always looks aggressive. Does,
1: yeah, he always does. He looks really aggressive in one week stage races, but eight. he didn't like. Usually, it's like he's aggressive and he'll pop himself. He like kind of kept those efforts going. He yeah. did. He did. I I still think that he's unproven uh, across the full three weeks. No, I, he's I, ninth in last year's Tour
2: de France overall.
1: That's still ninth. Ninth. You know, ninth. ninth. Uh, I think. I, that I don't he, think
2: he's going to get on the tour podium. No, I. I, I you know, I, I would say that. I think he's still in that sort of sixth to tenth kind of area. I'll I'll give him seventh in this tour. I'm I'm calling my shot. Damar in seventh place overall Tour de France 2017. Bardet
0: seemed to be climbing very well, but ooh, stinky
1: TT. Terrible. Terrible. He he lost so much time to port. Yeah, that was really ugly and there's only 37 kilometers of time trialing in this race. Uh, So there's the opening prologue and then There is the TT in Marseille at the end that is, I think, 23K. Um, That 23K time trial is the one that is really going to matter because everyone's fresh for the opening TT, so times will be pretty tight. Uh, The final one is two days after the Isward stage. Guys are going to be tired. That one's going to be really important. Okay, another quick hitters. We had some
0: uh, we had some weirdos in the top twenty. Yeah, we had some like non traditional GC riders or guys just new names we haven't seen. Really uh, fresh names, fresh names in the top twenty. Uh, Tijj Benoot. The Bannut. next Tom Boonen apparently is apparently racing for GC next now. Jurgen
2: Vandenbroek. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> I like seeing him up there. I mean, he his body like his body shape. You know, he's light. He's a real. He's much smaller than he's most tiny. of these guys. He's tiny. I don't know why. I think he's just a strong rider who he's stuck with the classics because he's Belgian.
2: Well, and he popped a great ride at Tour of Flanders in 2015, fifth yep. place, so... Yeah, yeah, I mean,
1: finished 12th overall. Hey, yeah, run with it if you're... <laughs> right, finished 12th overall, uh, shortly behind Raphael Valls, his other teammates. Uh, that's a really good ride for for a, a very young Teach Banu. He's still 23 years old, so... Yeah, well, we'll want to keep an eye on that. I could totally see Banute sort of taking an, a, a look at one-week stage races starting next season? Yeah. I think toss, he'd be him really, the, toss him into the Vuelta, maybe. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. I think he'd be really good in the one-week stage <laughs> race. Thing. He's, he's got a good time Charlie, on him, and he proved that he could climb to the Dauphiné.
0: He uh, posted on his Twitter, Stage 8 of the Dauphiné, one of the hardest days on a bike for me. And it's a picture of his bike computer showing his various stats. So he definitely uh, he definitely felt it. But yeah, good on you, Tish. Um, another guy, Emmanuel Buchmann. Yep, the bookworm. The bookworm. Bookman. I've got to say, great uh, author or librarian name. Yeah, Manny Bookman, <laughs> Manny the Bookman. Yeah, he's another youngster. Won the young best
2: young writers jersey. Yeah, only two thirty-two back. He was climbing with the best guys. Yeah. most of the time
1: he very, was there in the last rider. day. Very, very, very impressive. Uh, I, you know, he's not going to get any real support from Bora Hansgrohe while Peter Sagan still exists. No. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, he can, he can. Maybe he can shoot for some stage wins or something like
0: that. Uh, earlier this year when I interviewed Bora Hans-Gro, uh team director, Ralph Dank, and asked him the requisite, is this team just all about uh, Peter Sagan question, and he said no. And he, this was like the guy he pointed to. It was like, no, we're not just all about we got-
1: Peter Sagan. We got Manny Bookman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, good on you, Manny Bookman. That was a great ride. What about uh, Andrew Tolansky? Keep an eye on him. Yep. He's t- finished 22nd. Not exactly what he was hoping for. But Good you know. ride on Alpe d'Huez, though. Really good ride on Alpe d'Huez. Aggressive,
2: riding aggressive.
1: Uh, he definitely sort of pulled the pin uh, a couple times, and so I don't think he was really riding for GC at this Dauphiné. It's definitely a tune-up for him for the Tour de France. He's really shooting for that top five that he's been searching for for a long time. Uh, I think that, yeah, he looked he looked pretty he, good when it really mattered.
2: He was okay in the time trial. And he was
1: pretty good in the time yeah. trial. A minute
2: back, not bad. So
1: Yeah, I mean, he, could, he could be could be could be the year that he can get a top five a lot of it will depend on the luck of course uh, he does not come with a team that is that is totally backing him but he will have a lot of he'll have quite a bit of support nonetheless mm. uh, they're open to opportunities Look, looking to be to looking to be
2: opportunists. Yeah,
1: stage ones, uh, and finally
0: that alp stage. I mean, it was definitely like you like we said earlier. It was the it was the tough day that set up the short hard day. It um, went up. It went up Altaway's like a different way. Kind of like <laughs> went up the seren, the which they've come down before. Yeah, and it's
1: actually really 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 hard to go up. So it's almost harder than going up the front side.
0: But you know, this was the stage.
1: It was weird
2: though. I looked at it. I was like, this doesn't look like the alp <laughs> it was like a little
0: bump at <laughs> the end. Confusing. So <laughs> this was the stage though that we
1: had to. To try to do some predictions on last yep. week. This was the the key to our who is wronger stage. Well, Spencer and I, and we had Alex Howes on the episode last week, so nice. Alex, al- Alex also put in his who's wronger Alright, let's listen. Who was wrongest? Dauphiné stage 7 to mm. Alpe Spencer, right.
2: what's your pick? My pick for this is going to be that there's going to be a flurry of attacks Contador and Port all the other big guys, but uh, they're not going to be able to crack Chris Froome. He, he might come in a few seconds down, but he's going he's gonna to go into that stage, I think, with the overall lead, or at least poised for the overall lead after the time trial, and he's going to kind of make sure everyone realizes he's the top dog going into the Tour de France on that Alpe d'Huez stage.
1: I'm saying long-range attack from Fabio Aru. Oh, okay. That's yep. a good one. Like before they even get to Alpe d'Huez. Whoa. He's going to take stage win. Do I get to do one? <clears throat> oh, yeah. Alex, who's going to who's going to win the uh, stage seven of the Dauphine? Bardet. 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 In what manner? Bardet. He's going to come to line with Port. And he's going to get him. Ooh, all right. Froome's going to be 14 seconds back. Oh, oh. And Specific. uh Specific. Contador's going to be... Somehow, second, also. (laughs) Let's find out who's wronger. We are all pretty wrong. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty wrong. Wow, yeah, way, super wrong. Way off. We were super wrong. Alex was the closest. Alex predicted uh, that Roman Barday would have a good ride, right. and, and Barday did have a, a decent ride. So fifth on that day. Alex was the least wrong. Okay. So it turns way. out pro cyclists know. Yeah, it's
2: funny they actually know uh, what's happening in the race. Way to, Weird. Way to, go. Way Weird. to go. Weird. <laughs> That's that's like cheating, though, right? It is. It's cheating. It's an unfair advantage to actually be in those races. Well, it's that's I, like uh, you can't be like betting on a race that you're racing in, right? It's, I don't think you can. It's like uh, the Chicago Black Sox situation.
0: Something tells me that we're gonna have Alex back in here at some point, and we can we can try to improve our who's wronger performance against him <laughs> in the future. We'll sabotage him. Well, guys, I mean, this race has given us plenty for the old water cooler chats uh, between now and the Tour de France. Obviously, we also have the Tour de Suisse going on, Eh. which I'm sure we'll have some fun fodder for next Week uh, to talk about, but yeah, I I don't know. Uh, this stoked me up. Like before, I was a little lukewarm on this Tour de France. You know, Sky Froome, whatever. They're just going to win the fourth, and now we have some good storylines, some good challenges. For the
1: first time ever, I would say that Froome looks vaguely beatable. Yep, not ever. For the first time in a while, <laughs> Froome looks well, vaguely beatable. To quote everyone at the Dauphiné, hey, still three weeks. Yeah, three, three, weeks. Still, three weeks. Three weeks to go. Three weeks to go. Literally everyone <laughs> said I that. still think he's going to win a tour. <laughs> but he looks vaguely beatable. That's the smart money. Yep. Guys... My bike's broken. Oh, no no. Yeah.
0: My bike's broken too.
1: Yep. I I uh, got a flat when I was groating this weekend. I had a, I, so did I. My I tire's ruined. Tried to do a wall ride going up Flagstaff and it exploded. You no, know, whatever. My bike I need a new chain, need a new cassette. My uh shifter cables are very
0: stretched. My bike is a mess right now. What should we do about this? Well, <laughs> Kaylee. For people like us who are in dire need of bike assistance, there is VeloFix. Oh, I love VeloFix. It's the mobile bike shop that comes to your house or workplace to work on your bike. They're fixing my bike right now while we're talking here. (laughs) Wow. Very impressive. So VeloFix mobile bike shop, they will come to your workplace. They'll come to your house. All you have to do is make an appointment and the handy van man in a van
1: shows up at your door, ready to fix your bike. And they come to you. That is the best part. The, the, the important part about Velifix is that they will come to your home or office. And that is super handy for very, very busy. Very, very busy podcasters <laughs> like us. Podcasters like us. Like us. <laughs> Thanks to Velifix for sponsoring the News podcast this week. Tony Mason!
0: Okay, guys, on with section number two of the show. Uh, in this month's issue of Velo News Print Magazine, that is the June 2017 issue with a very nice picture tamponed on the cover, um, Kaylee Fretz, sitting to my left, What's up? went to Belgium to have a front row seat for Tom Bonin's Farewell Tour. You were able to see him perform at these races. You were also able to shadow him in some training rides, see him interact with fans, and you wrote a very nice feature story called Tom Bonin's Fairy Tale about this last chapter in Tom Bonin's career. So I think a good place to start off this discussion, Kaylee, is to take us through what your reporting looked like for this Mm. story.
1: Well, uh, I arrived shortly before the tour of Flanders, and I was certainly not the only reporter attempting to shadow Tom Boonen in his final races. It was me and basically all of Belgian media. That, it's interesting. Tom is Belgian. You would think that he's Flandrian. You would think that Flanders would be the big one for him. Uh, it was his last Flanders. It was, you know, it was basically his last big home race. Uh, and still, Flanders didn't feel like the end. It didn't feel like a big celebration yet. Uh, it just felt like, okay, this is just my last Flanders. Uh, Tom Boonin has always been more inspired by Perry roubaix and that's why that was his final race. Uh, and so showed up, uh, spent some time with him, or sort of near him before the Tour of Flanders, went to his press conference, hung out a little bit, chatted with a whole bunch of some of the Belgian journos who have spent their entire careers covering Tom Boonin. you know, started covering him when he was very, very, very young and have covered him for the full, what, 16 or 17 years of his career. Uh, chatted with them for a while. Went on to Skelterpress, which is at the middle of the week. They actually moved the start of Skelterpress so that it started in Tom Boonin's hometown of Mole. And that was a pretty incredible scene. Uh, that was almost more impressive than at the Tour of Flanders, I would say. Because it started in his hometown, uh, this is a Wednesday. This is you know people should be at work. They should be at school. Clearly, pretty much a national holiday. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people packing the the main square in Mole, cheering, booning on. You know, packing around his bus. Uh, I will say that there were just as many, if not more, people uh, around Peter Sagan's bus as well. But that's, that's pretty normal for Peter Sagan. And as he rolled out, you could just sort of, you could hear this cheer kind of following him around, uh, following him around Mole, following him around the, the start area until he finally lined up. And uh, they're doing all the announcements. And, and you can hear whenever Tom Boonin's name would, would pop up in the announcements, he'd get a big cheer and rolled out. And uh, it was pretty cool to be at his final race starting in his hometown. I'll say that that was pretty neat. I guess his, I, can, I think his sister has a like a hairdresser right, right around the corner from where the start was and stuff like that. And, and this then, was the scene where there were literally thousands
0: of people wearing Tom Boonin masks.
1: Correct. Yeah, the scene that we opened the story with uh, is actually from Skeletal Press, where uh, Stenek Stebar was signing uh, Tom Boonin's face, because Tom Boonin's face was everywhere. They, they uh, The Quick Step itself, the, the sponsor, and the, they make floor tiles and things like that, made—they got these— Tomboonin faces printed, uh, these masks, and they had a you know crappy elastic around the back, and you pop the eyes out and wear them around. And so there were thousands of Tomboonins walking around Mole that morning, and actually they were they were around the entire week. Yeah, so moved on from Skeletal Press. The next couple days were the lead up to Perry roubaix and this was this was the final race. This is the the last. The last stand for Tom Boonin. Went out with the team for Recon Day. I got to watch him come across the Carrefour, hang on a little bit with the mechanics, chat with them a little bit, chat with some of his teammates. Uh, He was very quiet that day uh, and was not really speaking to anybody, let alone the press. A little bit of chatting with his his teammates, etc., but uh, definitely...
0: It's so pretty business as usual. Pretty business
1: as usual, mm. you know. I, were the mechanics nervous? Because
2: I mean, mechanics were a little <laughs> bit nervous. If <laughs> you mess up Tom Bonin's bike in the oh final Paris Roubaix, you're gonna you're the, no longer
0: Flemish. You're no longer Flemish. Well, because no, because they, cause the they messed up his bike yeah.
1: in, in in Flanders, right? R- they like kicked you out of the before, country. And, yeah, it <laughs> was it was ugly. <laughs> they, I mean, everyone around him almost seemed more nervous than than Boonen. Uh I will say that it's funny. Boonin was was he sort of refused. To open any emotional doors in, in the week before Perry Rubé. And I think that was very much an effort to just keep those things kind of sequestered away inside his head. Uh, because if, I think if he let himself think about it and let himself feel too much, it was just going to become really overwhelming uh, to have his final Rubé. And, and coming into his final Rubé, would just be very, very stressful. So very sort of uh, stoic in the lead up he was funny in his, in his, in his pre Paris press conferences. He's always pretty funny. He's funny in English. Uh, he always insists on doing the press conferences in English because it, it helps him reach a, a broader audience, which I think is pretty cool. Um, and then we come into Roubaix and well, everyone knows how that went. Uh, didn't exactly finish on the fairy tale that, that pretty much everybody was hoping for. I mean, this is one of those circumstances where even though we press are supposed to be neutral, everybody in that room was, was, you know was was cheering for a Tom Boone in victory. Uh, it was pretty clear that it was not going to happen with, you know, 20 30 kilometers to go. Bit of a letdown. And then uh, they came into the velodrome and Tom basically disappeared. He almost immediately disappeared. I was cruising around in the in, in uh, the, the inside of the the Roubaix velodrome like looking for him, trying to figure out where he went, a whole bunch of other reporters doing the exact same thing, and he uh, he ghosted, basically. Ghosted back to his bus, uh, and then everyone sort of went over to the bus and waited for him to come out. He did finally come out. Uh, you know, eventually sign some said hi to the fans but no he was he was clearly emotional following that Roubaix he was and it was not necessarily all good emotions I yeah, think he was kind of mad
2: he, he was pretty mad kind of thought that Kolb was marking him a little too much yep,
1: yeah when he yeah. came out of the bus it was about a half hour later uh, he made those comments about Kolb and, and negative racing and things like that negative uh, racing there it is again, it is again. <laughs> turns out when you lose everything was negative <laughs> uh, yeah he came out I, I, I was a little bit disappointed uh in two things. I wanted Tom, first of all, to go into the showers one last time. Uh, I think at the very least we would have had some great photography out of it. <laughs> Purely selfishly. And I feel like it would have been sort of respecting the finish more if he had done that. Uh, and I would have just liked to see, you know, a last lap around the Velodrome. Like I know you didn't win. Uh, I wish he would have been able to see, you know the bright side in his final Roubaix ride and rather than ghost to his bus if he had given us all a a final lap you know arm in the air Uh, That would have been that would have been really special. There were a lot of fans who came a long way uh, to see him in that Ruby velodrome. I mean, I've never seen that many people on the infield. The entire outside was completely packed with people. You know, I would say probably 20, 30 percent more people at that velodrome than than any time that I've ever been there. Uh, And they really they did not get. Uh, of course, they didn't get the Boonin victory they were hoping for, and then they also just didn't even get a, a final goodbye, which I think is unfortunate.
0: Well, that's why they had to have that Bonin event a couple weeks later. We did the techno dancing on stage <laughs> with Peter Sagan and his amazing haircut. Um, yeah, no, it's, it, it does seem, read as a bittersweet farewell, but you know, one of the components in that story that I thought was very telling was actually the pre rube press conference where Tom Bonin is speaking in English. He gives more time than he's supposed to give. He answers everyone's question. He speaks with journal journalists individually, which really speaks to Tom Bonin's legacy in cycling, which was not only was he a, this amazing racer who was able to win the biggest monuments out there, but he was a guy who dealt with the press in a very professional way and was always there to give insights in the race and and really spoke to his fans through the media and 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 did so in a way that like that provided genuine insight. You know, as we move past the Tom Bonin era, we are seeing riders who are using social media more or they're just not saying much at all. I mean Peter Sagan is the prime example of someone who almost has a confrontational relationship with the media. And um, Tom Bonin, you know, he always had insights. He'd tell you about what went on in the race and he 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 would speak at length. About it,
1: Yeah. And and everyone says that. And that's the thing is, is Tom Boonin wasn't always, um, he was, sorry, he wasn't only sort of giving to the press and the media in terms of his time. He was, I can't tell you how many stories I heard throughout the week of, oh, I, you know, I ran into Tom Boonin at this, at the airport, uh, at this random cafe, uh, you know, out riding, whatever, where people said that he was exactly as, he was, he was just as genuine in those situations as he was with, you know, in a very professional situation because the, the re- relationship between athlete and media when you're at a race, is it's a professional relationship. Uh, but Boonen was always, he was always exceptionally genuine and exceptionally exceptionally giving with his time. Uh, to everybody and that was one of the things that made him really special and made him such a fan favorite in addition to winning all of the monuments uh, in addition to one of the greatest Palmares in cycling history he was more accessible than almost any other pro cyclist that I can think of
0: and that is a question we really set out to try and answer with this story which was how does Tom Bonin fit in this family of Flemish Uber champions, you know, going back from Eddie Merckx, uh Van Looy, obviously um, uh, Museu, Museu, and then Bonin, and you know, I spoke with Museu about it, and he's very much like, "Oh well, Tom Bonin is just the the most recent edition of me, you almost know? as good as me, almost as good as me, <laughs> or like he was as I was, which is was Eddie Merckx was." And I don't know. Through that lens, I almost feel like Tom Bonin achieved higher heights than the men who came before him because he came of age in a global mass media world in which brands could get behind him and splash his image across the globe in which his comments and stories about him could be absorbed by social media and by, you know, thousands of reporters at the Tour de France. You know, um, Museo talked about, well, in the old days, there'd only be 100 reporters at the Tour de France. And now Tambona is speaking and, the, you know, his, his comments are getting... Repeated across the sure. world. And so, you know, I don't... And, and then the other thing, the other element is just that Tom Bonin in his prime was this really good-looking guy who um, just caught the eyes of... of Everybody. Everybody. You know, he was just beaming <laughs> yeah. Adonis of a man, and brands could really promote his looks and um, his sexuality um, acro- remember that like gladiator the ad? The gladiator <laughs> ad, the Tom and the the uh, the bathtub full of beans ad. Yep, you know those are things I I didn't see Museu ever like without his shirt on, dressed as his Roman gladiator. Nope. And I think that did take the Bonin Brand to new heights in this sport. Um, and he was a
1: flawed hero. That was the other thing. Is I think that yeah, actually you know there there were definitely there were moments there, uh, very difficult moments for for Tom. You know, cocaine positives, a little bit too much partying. You know, when you when you Crash hand, in a car. crashing cars, when you hand the keys to the world to a twenty two year old. I mean recall that good
2: analogy. Hand the keys to
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> recall that, you know, when he was third at, at Roubaix, Johan Museo literally pointed at him and said, you know, this is your next this is your next Belgian cobble king, basically. That's a lot of pressure to put on the shoulders of a very young man and a lot of money and a lot of fame and you know, basically an overnight change in your entire life. And so it's not too surprising that, uh, that a young rider like that did not always handle it all that well. But in the end, the fact that he was flawed, the fact that he came back from it, the fact that he became a much more wholesome, uh, kind of figure in, in his later years and was still winning, I think is, is a big part of what made him, uh, such a powerful force, within pro cycling you know then the next
0: story we had in this package was my story about Flemish cycling development which was trying to answer the question okay you know first of all the last five years everyone in Belgium has been asking the question who's the next Tom Bonin is it Tej Benut no is it Jasper Stuyven? no who is it who's going to be the next big Flemish champion and there's this crisis right now maybe we're not going to find him and my story Sort of set out to ask, all right, if this guy, if they are going to find an ex-champion, what's the system that's going to produce him? And after doing my reporting, I've come to the conclusion that they're 100 percent going to find him. Because (laughs) Flanders has this machinery set up to identify young, talented cyclists at a very young age plug them into the team infrastructure and races and development infrastructure that they need in order to grow through the ranks and achieve um you know get everything they need from testing to mechanical testing to training to access to big races and all along the way there are these safety nets set in place by the Belgian system to like help guys take the next step even if they're not ready. I mean, otherworldly talents like Tom Bonin, you know, Tij Banute, whoever, they rise really quickly. They're identified by U23 teams when they're still juniors and put into these systems that have lots of money and resources to funnel them right to the top. But along the way, for the the second-tier guys, like um, Thomas Degent, for example, mm-hmm. or... Who
2: often
1: find their legs a little bit later in their careers. Yeah. yeah. You
0: Guillaume know, Van Kiersbock. Guillaume yeah. Van Keersburg, um There are... Systems in place to give them a little bit of a safety net as they go along the way. For example, financially in a big way. Yeah, right? yeah. The um, Belgian, uh, the the Flemish Center of Employment has these stipends. I think it's like three hundred euros a month that they can give through. Um, it's like it's like a program that helps people change careers. The concept is like, hey, my career is ending and I need new education to go have a new career. And they'll give you like 300 euro a month to go learn how to be, go, go from being a machinist to a computer programmer. And since cycling is recognized as an actual profession there, it's like, <laughs> hey, I'm 24 years old. I really want to be a pro cyclist. I'm not there yet. And and the Federation can grant up to 60 of these stipends. So like 60 cyclists through uh, Flanders can get these 300 euro a month stipends to like um, allow them to kind of like live with mom and dad, still train, still race, and pay their bills. Right. Like, does that happen here? Not so much. Kaylee, did you get a government stipend when you were trying to be a pro cyclist?
1: <laughs> uh, no. No? no. Oh,
0: no. that's a
1: shame. Well, no. Worked in a
0: bike shop. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. Uh, then, the next safety net they have in place is um, you know, in the U23 ranks. There are tons of teams, and some of these U23 teams, I mean, they're better funded, they're more professional looking, and they just like they, they look more they look better than your typical continental team here in the states. It's like you could go see Jelly Belly set up at a typical continental pro race, and that's about what you'd find with like a Belgian U23 team mm-hmm. or or better, you know, <laughs> um, budgets anywhere from three hundred to five hundred thousand euro. And that's and that's staff people, that's training camps, that's that type of stuff. So when the guys graduate out of the U23 ranks, the natural progression is to go into the pro ranks, some continental pro team somewhere. And as we all know, that's a huge step for cyclists anywhere across the globe because there's a lot of talented U23 riders who don't get a pro contract or maybe they're not done with their progression and their training and they just need like... They need a little lifeline to help them get there. And that's where this uh, Top Sports and Belwa team comes in. Top Sport has been around for a long time. Um, I believe it was like chocolate jocks at one point. They've had a ton of different sponsors. And it's a pro team that pays guys the minimum. It, pays, it, it is only for Flemish cyclists. And so they get guys who are coming out of the U23 ranks who need like another couple years in the oven before they're ready for prime time and gives them a job. And they get access to, like, gent Wevelgem and paris and all these big Belgian races and classics. And they have three or four years to, like, keep progressing and show their
1: stuff. Yeah, we've seen top sport guys pop into the top ten at things like Paris-Roubaix. Oh, like, definitely. With, like, relatively frequently, actually. You know? so, and,
2: but they're called Sport Vlanderen right now, aren't they? It's yeah, not, it's just Sport Vlanderen. So they're not yeah. top anymore. No, no, more of a middle sport. No, bummer.
0: <laughs> top sport. Sorry, guys. And we're the, always going to call them top sport, though. We will. Uh, well, that's I'll like always. Call that's them just kind of what they're called. And the like the list of graduates to come out of top sport, it's kind of like this who's who. So, uh, Steen de Volder, Tom Steels, Mario Ertz, Leif Hosta, uh, Sepp van Mark, Thomas de Gent, Olivia Nassen, Edward Toons. I mean, like, just uh, this this team has provided this lifeline. To all of these guys that have gone on to the next step of the ranks, and that to me was one of the big aha moments where I was like, ah, this is a big difference between the U.S. system.
1: And yeah, there's the no Flemish safety system. net. There's no safety net in the U.S. It, it, you know, the, the the cream definitely rises to the top. You know, we're not too worried about Nielsen Palace getting a pro contract, right? But there are a lot of guys, and maybe action is the closest thing we have. Although you have to be pretty damn good just to make it onto that team. It'd be like if we had, you know, three or four different action kind of type programs. There's really just, there's not enough, there aren't enough spaces on those teams, you know, for all the guys that probably have the talent to eventually get to Europe to really give it a go. Well,
2: there's no stipends either. There's no stipends, yeah. And you might might be trying to go to college. There's there's other things. Which is a, a noble thing. Yeah, we all went to college. Yeah, try and get nah, me. college. Whatever. <laughs> Stick to bikes, guys. Stick <laughs> <Just> to bikes. <laughs> greatest spend, way to be a millionaire. Spend more time on the trainer. <laughs>
0: no, I hear you. I think about that a lot, too, where it's like there are so many talented U23s, guys in the college ranks, who could use um, you know a couple years being able to go to continental-level races in the United States um, as development riders to to cut their teeth. And there's just not there's not that level of support. There's not a... Um, Jelly Belly with 24 roster spots that's only open to American cyclists of a certain age that pays them the minimum but guarantees them access to the Tour of California and Gila and Redlands and all the big races across the states and and levels of support. And you have to wonder if there was that that, um, safety net there, how many of those guys could... Make the make the jump to the world tour. We do, we definitely have a bigger pool to draw from population
2: wise. Oh yeah, that's what's amazing about Flanders is it's just what three million people, perhaps six or six six point three million people. It's basically the front range of Colorado. Yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's. <laughs>
0: They're really efficient. <laughs> <laughs> Very efficient. And so, I mean, and this all comes down to cultural differences, you know. Of in, course. In talking to Jasper Steuven, he said, uh, you know, every little town has its race. When I was 12 and won a bike race and told my mom and dad that I wanted to be a pro cyclist, they got it. You know, that's right. like that's like telling your mom and dad when you're, I want to be a pro ball player, you know. It's like, oh, okay, that's a thing. That's a thing people do. I get right. it. Mm, too short to play football. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. You could be the football.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, that was rude. So, I mean, it's just you know, it, it's not a perfect system. Guys do fall through the cracks. Um, when was the last Flemish Grand Tour champion? Um, you know, they they do tend to identify and develop. Riders with very specific talents geared towards the Flemish classic races. Um, I think if you were going to knock the system, that's something you could say. But the other way, the other way you could look at it is that I think it was like three quarters of all World Tour teams have a Flemish, at least one Flemish rider, pro rider on the contract. And it's like, yeah, okay, there you go. Like this tiny little region of six million people is graduating. All of these pro cyclists into the ranks. And remember, there's
2: only three Grand Tour winners any given year. So right. it's like, it's a pretty long odds game for any country to put someone on the top of that podium. Right.
0: And a lot of these guys, they're the worker bees. You know, they are the strong, talented domestiques that are helping these teams um, with their stars in various races. Yeah. And that also just reflects the overall kind
2: of percentages in the Peloton, where yeah. it's like, yeah, well, most of the people in the Peloton are not at the front of the race usually.
0: So my guess is chances are the next Tom Bonin right now, he's in some, like, Kermess in a uh, trick right now and he's 15 years old and uh he's just about ready to drop everyone yep. and grow a sweet euro mullet and then just <laughs> dominate our lives failing
2: on all his friends who are going to the beach on the north sea yep. to, to party yeah like, no i must train no <laughs> knock a heist for me oh, knock i will a heist. try i will train in the wind yeah knock a heist is not where you're gonna find the next tom bonin
0: <laughs> anyway those two stories are in the current print issue of Vela News. that is the June 2017 and, issue. And you'll find them online as well, on VeloNews.com. Oh, that's true. Check yeah. them out online.
1: On the internet. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, guys, uh, let's bring it on home with final question. You know, I got development riding on my, on my brain. I got young, strong Belgian cyclists on my brain. So here's the question for this week. Uh, you ever gotten your butt handed to you by some, like, d- some Devo
1: kid? You ever been in a race and just gotten dropped <laughs> by some s- strong child? Yes. <laughs> Frequently. Uh the most dramatic one was I think I was a senior in college and I was doing a short track race, like collegiate cycling short track race. And Howard Grot showed up and was a freshman at Fort Lewis College. He was like is, seventeen, I think. He was like seventeen and he weighed about ninety eight pounds. This is this is he went to the Olympics in Rio last year, for those of you who don't follow mountain biking. And uh
2: yeah, national he's this little, champion little
1: tiny kid yeah. and I had no idea who he was and I'm kind of like riding in this front group of guys and then all of a sudden this like you know four and a half foot tall Howard Gratz comes flying by us up this climb like we are standing still and he lapped I think ever I think all of us he maybe didn't lap like second place but he definitely lapped me uh, and that was you know a little reality check okay that's uh, I think we found some real talent over
2: here thanks small child yeah <laughs> I remember Howard, try, he was asking for an upgrade to an A on the road back, like, his first season as a collegiate road, and I was the conference director then, mm-hmm. and I was like, yeah, I think you need to do a few more B races. <laughs> I was wrong. Uh, he, he was just fine. Um, but in terms of juniors who have beaten me, that the, the list is quite long and illustrious. Uh, probably, like, Gage Heck here in Colorado just pummeling me in the local cross races. That's That's been kind of the reality of my life in the last two or three years. And uh, before that, you know, Yannick Ekman or all those guys... Yeah, it's they they just keep showing up these kids. They used used to start Yannick
0: like two minutes behind the cat three field for cross, and he would catch and pass all of us. Just chew through, just burn through the whole field. (laughs) I know, feel like a total loser. One year I was at Killington Stage Race, and there were a bunch of hot tube kids in the field. I don't, unfortunately, I don't remember any of their names. But we were going up some climb, and like the hot tube kids were attacking, and but they weren't getting anywhere. So I put in like an attack, and like yelled at the hot tube kids like, Yeah. I don't know. It's just been a total Yahoo. And then like two of them went off and just they caught me and dropped me so hard. And it was just like I was the total jackhole who
1: <laughs> was like, yeah,
0: hot tube kids, I'm going to drop you. and Attack they, the
1: juniors. Yeah, they killed me. Whoops. Yeah, whoops. My dad got dropped by Greg LeMond one time on Junior Gears. That's all time. He, te- he tells that story. Yeah, Ooh. Yeah. That is an all time getting yeah, dropped that's by a little good one. Kid. I think it was at like Somerville. Way, way, way back in the day. Yeah, <laughs> LeMond is like a 16-year-old on junior years, just pulling the pro field around for laps and laps and laps. Did your dad talk some smack to him beforehand? Uh, I hope so.
0: Hey, go back to the nursery. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <It's dropped. laughs> Uh,
0: well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post the links to the stories we talked about today on VeloNews.com. Subscribe to the Vela News podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VeloNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. And follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VeloNews. The Vela News podcast is produced by Vela News, which is owned by the competitor group. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the VeloNews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Pretty Classic Soul Drums.